the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome back to the podcast. Hello, Justin. Welcome back, everyone. Hey, Lindsay. Uh, So we're continuing our remote recording. Hopefully sometime in the not-so-distant future, we will be in the same studio together recording eye-to-eye, face-to-face, you know, closer than six feet apart. But until that day (laughs) happens, we'll continue uh, recording safely from our individual locations. It's going okay so far. I'm not. I'm not mad at it. I, I feel yeah. like I feel like we're di- dialing in the sound thing. You know, I feel like it gets a little smoother with each uh, with each episode. It's weird to not be looking at you to be like vibing off of you yeah. to know where we're where we're going. But otherwise, you know, we talk it out. It's good. That's just just so you guys know, we have gone for dog walks, so we have seen each other. Yeah, we have in seen real each other. in real life. Yeah, in real life. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but not as not as much as I'd like, you know. No. But. And, you know, it's not just the movies that we talk about with the podcast for specific episodes. Like, we just, sometimes we just want to talk about movies. Yeah. Just any yeah. anything, you know. Yeah, feels good. Yeah. Well, uh, we're going to do some movie talking today, the kind in which uh, our <laughs> listeners can hear. And yeah. uh, today's movie I'm excited about. We've kind of kicked this one around quite a few times uh, to do, and I'm glad it's finally here. And that's John Singleton's Boys in the Hood. Uh, I know it's been a year now after, since John Singleton's passed away, you know, RIP. Um, and, you know, probably this episode should have come sooner than later, but uh, it is here. And I'm excited to talk about Boys in the Hood and John Singleton's career a little bit. John Singleton was somebody that... Like when I was watching movies a lot in the 90s, um, I didn't even know sometimes that I was watching a John Singleton movie. I wasn't paying attention to them like in that way. And I think it wasn't until his third film that I was really like, who is this dude? And then I realized, oh, this is the same guy that did Poetic Justice and Boys in the Hood and really became such a fan of John Singleton and I I couldn't be happier that we were talking about this truly wonderful uh story everything about this movie uh, I feel like this movie should be taught in school you know like not not I mean in college but probably inappropriate for high school but man I feel like it would be beneficial in a lot of ways yeah, I think it's like a very eye-opening movie, and certainly for 1991, it's really aged very well, too. I mean, this is a movie that uh, seems still very, very powerful, you know, and very rich. And, um, yeah, it's been a great—yeah, I've watched it, you know, several times in the last week, and it's just such a great story, great characters, but also at the same time, like, you know, it's a, it's a drama, and, and there are some devastating things that happen in it, but it's also like a very entertaining film, and there are, there is also a lot of humor in it as well. I had forgotten that upon revisiting it, the amount of humor that is in it, and I, I don't know how many times I, I cracked up. I think this is a movie, too, that's like, we'll get into it. I feel like we're like talking about the movie. We haven't I know, we're already talking about yeah, it. Yeah. But um, uh, but yeah, we're, you know, we're going to get into uh, in depth and in boys in the hood. Uh, so much to talk about the cast, 
John Singleton, the director, um, how this movie came to be, how it, you know, the, the reaction that this movie had, there's, there's, uh, a lot of, uh, pieces came together to get this movie into production and into theaters. And then also, um, how it became, you know, like a very like cultural touchstone. You just kind of said it all. Yeah. <laughs> so much uh, to talk about with Boys in the Hood. After our discussion there, uh, we're going to get into our picks of the week. Uh, Lindsay, you uh, stayed with uh, John Singleton film. Am I right? Yes, I did. I went with Higher Learning, which was my my first introduction to him, actually. Yeah, I just watched that one uh, the other night. We I think we both kind of went on a a John Singleton kick. I I think I watched his first, uh, I think seven movies or I might've skipped yeah. one, but certainly it's something that is a strong thread throughout all of his films is that they all have so much heart. There's just a lot of, uh, man, if, if people communicated and had the honesty that happens in his movies, it, it would be a whole different world. Yeah. I tell you. Well, my uh, pick of the week, I went with Deep Cover, my connection being uh, there's actually a few people from Boys in the Hood and in Deep Cover, but uh, it's also, I think, what most people will consider to be Lawrence Fishburne's first lead role where he's like, you know, the top build actor for the movie. Man, I hadn't seen this one in a while and I'm real excited to talk about it. It was really, uh, it was a great one to revisit. Yeah, I I know nothing about this one and I can't wait to hear about it. Well, as always, we'll round out things with our Murray moments. Um, but before we get into our first clip from Boys in the Hood, Lindsay, can you give us just a brief summary on what uh, this movie's about? Of course, I would love to. So it's set in South Central Los Angeles. This is a coming-of-age story about a boy sent to live with his father during the most formative years of his life. And though the pull to get involved in a world of gangs and drugs is all around him, his father guides him into making better decisions for himself, more enlightened decisions. But not having the same kind of support in the lives of uh, his closest friends, we see how that can lead down more devastating paths. Uh, This movie has a ton of heart. You know, like I said, every John Singleton movie does. But I, I really feel that there is something so special about this one. And I think there's a lot of things that can be said about about boys in the hood and we will get into that but one thing uh, i think overall it just gives a better understanding to a world that a lot of people knew and a voice that wasn't being being shown on in in the cinema and um it gives a better understanding of of black culture in um, south central los angeles thanks for that no it's uh, i think that really uh kind of sums it up real nicely yeah Thanks. Well, let's go into our first clip from Boys in the Hood, then we'll be back. We'll talk about it. Hey, man, what's wrong with you? Fuck you looking at, nigga? I'm still trying to find out, nigga. Hold on, hold on. Oh, we got a problem here? Hold on. We got a problem here? We got a problem, nigga? Oh, what up with this? Gun away, nigga. Can we have one night where there ain't no fight, nobody gets shot? Shut up, bitch. Bitch, I'm a fuck. You call a bitch. Let's get that bitch ass. Why are you like that? You a bitch. Fuck you. Let's go, fuck. Punk, motherfucker. Ferris always trying to start some shit. Nigga can't fight, so he always trying to find some excuse to shoot somebody. That's why food be getting shot all the time. 
trying to show how hard they is. Ignorant. Oh, fool, shut up. You be doing that shit, too. So, Boys in the Hood is probably one of the more personal stories a director has made. And it's interesting, too, because at such a young age, I think Singleton was like 18 when he started developing the idea for this as a requirement to get into film school at USC and uh, continued working on, you know, developed the idea and then wrote the script while in college and, you know, was able to sell the movie to Columbia Pictures before he had graduated, which is kind of nuts. It is. And I love to hear him uh, talking about the writing process, like when he was coming up with this movie because he knew what he wanted to do and he saw what was around him. And like being a director, it seemed like for being a movie kid, it was like he finally realized that's what I meant to do. And and he kind of lived by the idea of write what you know. And that's kind of where uh, Boys in the Hood came from and why it seemed to come really naturally to him to a guy with a hell of a lot of writing talent um, I think like above everything else he was a really great writer and hearing him talk about writing this in the computer lab at USC was really funny because he he said that writing the dialogue he'd get like really amped about it and would like be saying some of this dialogue in the in the movie and, you know, it's pretty brash sometimes. I don't know. It's pretty funny. He's like, I tried to scare all the white people. You know, I'm like one of the only black guys there. I've got to <laughs> keep people in line. But just thinking about him, like, acting out some of the dialogue in a, in a quiet library is pretty funny to me. I think his writing is his strongest suit. You know, this movie is, I think, not only kind of groundbreaking for having been one of the first, I think, movies that really showed like a like an edgy, dramatic side of, of life in South Central Los Angeles that was like a decent budgeted movie. I think the budget for 1990 when this was made was like around $6 million or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. So not, not you know, not a massive budget, but it, was, it wasn't an indie film by any means. You know, it was like studio-backed. And for a movie like that to hit the screen, certainly it's it's it was showing a side of America that many, many people hadn't seen, uh, period, much less on the big screen. The The writing of the movie, I think, you know, the characters, the development, the story, um, you know, just having, a, just having an environment or a world that is unfamiliar to a lot of people, though interesting, doesn't make a good movie altogether, you know, and I think like everything seems so real and edgy, but also comedic. A lot of educational messages throughout the movie that talk about gentrification or like how like systematic racism gets developed in neighborhoods and why um, neighborhoods are in poverty continue to be taken advantage of from the wealthy. And now all that stuff is always talked about now. Um, you know, you see it in the news, you, you, there's books written on it, but um, pretty wild seeing a movie come out in 1991 by a 23-year-old director. And the fact that a studio took a chance on him that Columbia Pictures did. And I, I mean, he had a woman at Columbia that was, uh, I think, what, what was she? She was a reader and then became an executive, I think, when Boys, went in, when Boys in the Hood went into production. He had people that read the script but helped push it along. Otherwise, this movie was not the easiest 
like thing to sell to Columbia to say, hey, make hey, make this movie by this 22 year old kid. And we want a couple million dollars. And oh, by the way, um, you can try asking him to sell his script to you for like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. But he's not he's he's going to be like, well, that's too bad because I'm going to direct it. This is my movie. I'm directing it. You're going to do what I say. And he got away with it. It's nuts. And I think in a lot of ways, there's no way that a movie like Boys in the Hood could be made um, just today with all the factors. A 22-year-old, four months, I think, out of college. I think he, he thought about going to grad school and I think even applied. But then this got picked up and so he kind of abandoned that idea. But the idea just that a studio took a chance on someone back when a filmmaker was, I mean, this was right as, you know, the idea of an indie filmmaker, the indie movie was really starting to, I mean, it hadn't even become a thing yet, but this was a movie that certainly helped kickstart young directors, especially with a fresh voice um, saying something that mainstream white America really, let's just say it hadn't, doesn't know anything about. And it was awesome. <laughs> just awesome when he did. If you've ever seen in interviews with John Singleton, he's certainly not lacking in confidence. And I think that you know <laughs> you, you have to be a pretty confident person to you know tell a studio when you're 22 years old to say, no, I'm directing this movie. He made the movie he wanted to make. He got the performance he wanted to make. And he said, certainly there were times where things were rushed and they had to make concessions on, you know, well, maybe we can't make this as big a scene as we want, but overall, you know, set out to make the movie that he wanted to make. And, I, you know, I think that that's such a rare thing. You know, usually you always hear directors say, that, you know, they make compromises and this movie was supposed to go this way and they, they weren't happy with it or weren't satisfied. But, you know, he seems every bit happy with this movie and everyone that works on it, you know, has nothing but, you know, amazing things to say about it. And we'll probably get more into like his directing, uh, like kind of how Boys in the Hood formed that a little bit later. But I have to say that the strongest thing about this film for me is the story and the casting choices that he wanted, you know, that he chose for this movie. And Jackie Brown, who is the casting director, certainly facilitated this. But John Singleton certainly had ideas on who he wanted for that. I mean, hell, he wrote Doughboy for Ice Cube and pretty much um, the same thing for Lawrence Fishburne's character too. It's one of the biggest things in this movie and what's so powerful about it is that everyone in it, no matter who you are, what your background is, if you know South Central Los Angeles or not, everyone is so relatable. The performances, you feel it. Everybody, it is just a, um, a story that I think anyone could feel, you know? Like you said, the story and the characters to this are so rich. I mean, I think not only relate, not only relatable, but like very, um, yeah, very developed, very yeah. developed, you know, and like Lawrence Fishburne's character, Furious, who plays the Cuba Gooding Jr.'s dad in this, I think anybody can relate to that as like a, a father who has had had a child when he was really young, saw how, in, you know, in, his, in a neighborhood where there's not a lot of money, there's not a lot of opportunity, and a lot of people to deal with the hardships move to drugs or crime. And, you know, he talks about that in the movie. I think that that's part of his his fiber of his character and how you see an audience sees him try to not let his son fall through the cracks. Like he's seen so many people and like really strive 
to potentially be hard on them. And I think any, you know, parents can look at this movie and say, you know, it's like, there's always that conversation of like, am I too hard on my kids? or Am I too easy on my kids? It will affect how they develop. And I think we as, uh, you know, growing up in our relationships with our parents, that's all on screen. You know, you can kind of see it's not very long, that seven year period between, you know, being 11 or 12 to like, 18 there a lot can happen you know the development stage there and I think Boys in the Hood really shows that amongst all the characters you know the the three friends that are growing up we see the distinction on the decisions they make and in the way their parents what their relationship with their parents are um, especially with like Doughboy and Ricky they're brothers from two separate fathers um, the mom favors Ricky but she always lashes out Doughboy, Ice Cube's character. And I think, again, that's another thing that's like very relatable and, and very, you know, it's not one dimensional, you know, there's, there's scene after scene where we're building on that and you see the difference in a relationship and how it's affected friendships. And that's something, you know, that's very true to life, you know, with friendships and in our relationships with family and, and how that, you know, affects our character. The other reason that this works so well um, is because Singleton was writing from personal experience and it like any movie uh, where that happens with a director, especially writer director too, when they're writing from experience, it's going to be so much more heartfelt, so much more earnest. Singleton's mom, you know, really did send him to live with his father and his father was a very good role model and like whipped him into shape. And he was kind of a little unruly and really did kind of help form the responsible human being that he that he turned into and really responsible and like had a vision and knew what he wanted to do. And even if he didn't feel confident about something, he knew that he had to project that idea of confidence. I mean, especially if he's supposed to be in a lot of ways, the Cuba Gooding Jr. character in, in Boys in the Hood, Cuba is the one that that sticks out uh, amongst everybody. And John Singleton, like he was, he looked pretty nerdy. Like, you know, he, he wouldn't necessarily like, he, he was on another level, you know? And I think that when you know a story's coming from a very personal place that the guy that's writing it knew these characters in the movie, or he had friends of friends that were, were these characters in the movie that there's no way that they can't be rich and developed. When I also like, too, how Singleton in the script makes these distinctions between how people can kind of be torn um, as they get older and like how they view things like Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character, Trey, has a friendship. He used to be good friends with Doughboy um, when he was younger, and then Doughboy kept going to jail. And he's still, you know, now he's more better friends with Ricky, who, you know, is in the sports and kind of working toward uh, going to college. But Trey doesn't look down on Doughboy. You know, he doesn't, there doesn't, he doesn't seem to have this sort of arrogance, like I'm better than you because I'm, you know, staying out of trouble and I have this job and I'm not going to sell drugs. But we see that his dad, Furious, there's a scene where Doughboy's mom is talking to Trey when he's younger and she's like, how come your dad doesn't come around here anymore? I hope he doesn't think he's better than we are. And you do see that Furious... Lawrence Fishburne's character has distanced himself from the neighbors that he probably has like a different view on how to live life. And it almost seems like he does kind of look down on, on that a little bit, but his son kind of seems, sees both sides of it. You know, he, these are his friends and he is protective of his friends and he's loyal to his friends, even though 
you know, maybe he doesn't want to make the decision, same decisions that Doughboy makes. That's not the path he wants to go on, but he doesn't, fr- you know, frown on Doughboy for selling drugs or like carrying a gun with him. By the same token, Doughboy doesn't put down or shame Trey for, you know, let's say not wanting to drink or smoke weed. He doesn't make fun of him or anything like that. It was very much a mutual respect. And one aspect of this movie, probably like one of the biggest, is thinking about it as a choosing your life path. Two kids that grow up in the same neighborhood and have different home lives, both single parent lives, but they both choose vastly different paths in life. And I think that this is, yet again, a universal story where anyone can relate to it. You know, maybe you don't live in a neighborhood where there are gunshots and helicopters like flying over on the regular, but you can, knowing that this world actually does exist, you can imagine what these characters are going through, but you can just really imagine everything in it. Kind of one last thing I want to say about the script, too, is that John Singleton had a lot to say. He had a lot to say about his neighborhood. I mean, even the, uh, one of the last lines of the movie is, is Ice Cube saying, you know, he watched the news. They were talking about all these killings that happened in other countries, but there was nothing on his brother who was gunned down in, in cold blood. And, you know, Oof, he's yeah. basically saying the world outside of South Central isn't, they're not paying attention to what's going on, not just in South Central, but in black communities all across the United States. You know, they're not... They're not paying attention to the problems that, you know, that are, that are riddled in, in communities and where, where violence is really high. And Singleton said, you know, he wanted to, he was trying to walk a fine line with a script of not being heavy handed and not being preachy. And I think that this movie does a really good job of like having a message without seeming preachy in any way. And there's a specific scene, which I really like, where Ricky and, and Trey go to visit Furious at his office and he takes them to Compton and having them look over some development that's happening when, you know, it starts starts talking about gentrification and how there's no black owned businesses in their neighborhood and how things need to stay black. They need to be black owned. They, they weren't the ones that brought the drugs into their neighborhood and really like lays a pretty heavy uh, monologue onto these these guys and even people in the neighborhood are kind of watching. And, you know, when I was rewatching this movie, I, I rem- that part came up in my head and I was thinking like, is this going to come off cheesy now? Cause it's like all of a sudden all these people are listening to him kind of like preaching almost, but it really had an, an opposite effect to me. I was like, man, this is like so profound. Like nobody was talking about this, at least that I knew of. And I know that that scene can kind of like, like, like you said, look preachy, but to me, but I when I see that and see like the people from the neighborhood kind of like coming around in a lot of ways. I mean, when those those neighborhoods like everybody knows everybody's business, everybody's up in everybody's business. You know, like we see that a lot with Doughboy, like Doughboy owns his porch, his front porch, you know, and you know what's going on across the street. You know what's going on three houses down. You know the crackhead three doors down is letting her kids run out in the middle of the street and you always got to watch out for her kids. You know, the same thing with that, the Lawrence Fishburne gentrification scene is they're like, who's this guy coming to our neighborhood and what's he saying over here? Um, No one's afraid, but they're like, who's this outsider? Um, I love that scene. It is still so moving and it was lost on me when I originally saw this, you know, back in my teens. But seeing it now was um, just really, really moving. What a moving part. And going, we've kind of been throwing in a lot of the social commentary that John Singleton uh, threw into 
this this film one one thing that it only happens twice or interactions with this person happen twice it's a super common thing and super common in reality but to see in movies uh, a white cop being an asshole you know to to someone of color what's interesting about this though is that singleton looked at this as thinking you know we all know the white cop is a jerk we all know that we assume that but the deeper story is showing that also black cops can be jerks too to people um, of their same race and that is a whole other deeper level of of self-hatred and and something too that doesn't really get a lot of exposure in in movies i mean maybe now sure i guess but it's still not something that we that we see a lot and coming from um, an african-american point of view about this uh, this particular neighborhood in la and that people were so targeted um, especially african-american males i mean hell they still are today but seeing that having a black cop be so awful like he is in both the scenes in this movie makes so much more of an impact i think you don't yeah. e- you don't even have to be black to to see the impact of that uh, you know, I think this is a movie that's kind of looked at as like a, a pretty violent film, but it's it's really not. You know, and I mean, no, though, yeah. though the movie, you know, shows that at any moment, you know, people have to be on their toes and like a, a gunfire could break out. This isn't the movie where like people are getting shot like left and right throughout the whole film. I mean, there is, a, you know, and I think that's why the scene at the end is all much more powerful and dramatic because you kind of feel safe with these characters you know you grow to love them and like care about them I think that's the other side that John Singleton's showing is in neighborhoods where people don't have a lot um, just territory and like respect is like what is more valuable than than money because nobody has the money or that you know they don't have a means to get out of that area and so um, I think that's a side that other movies I think after Boys in the Hood kind of some of those movies focus more on like the crime aspect of this set of characters. And instead I think Singleton focused more on circumstance, which I think was like a really great move and and why it makes, why this movie I think sort of outshines uh, other, you know, movies that preceded it. One reason that is, is I think it's harder to write a story with the heartfelt emotion because you're dealing, you're dealing with like straight up feelings. I don't know how many times I thought, and this cast is maybe like 75% male, I think. But the amount of times that they talk about, like, actually open up to their friends, I was kind of surprised. Um, just because I'm not really used to seeing that from male characters, unless it's like a bromance, you know, comedy or something that, like, is kind of throwaway. But something that's actually having a dialogue about how you're feeling, what you're going through. And it's not just with Trey and his dad. It's like with Trey and his friends, it's Doughboy opening up. And that movie is so much harder to write than a movie that's just about straight-up violence. And not that that didn't exist, but this is the movie about people that were, for the most part, pretty innocent folks, yeah. like living amongst, living in this world where this was just a regular part of life. I mean, a really strong scene is when Cuba Gooding Jr. kind of breaks down after they get pulled over by the cop and harassed, uh, goes to his girlfriend's house and kind of breaks Oof. down in tears. And that is a side that, you know, like you said, you, you don't see in male characters, especially male characters always, you know, trying to be macho with their friends. I remember that scene like, you know, 
saw this movie maybe when I was like 14 and like thinking like, wow, that's, you know, cause I, at the, you know, especially when you're younger, it's like, you know, guys aren't supposed to cry and all that bullshit, you know, but it was specifically put in there to, again, kind of go against the grain of what we're used to seeing in movies. And just maybe kind of to round us out of this discussion, one final thing about that scene, Nia Long, who plays Brandy, Trey's girlfriend, her reaction in that is not like she doesn't know how to to help her boyfriend other than to just hold him, you know, as he's as he's having this breakdown. And she said after that scene was over, well, Cuba said that that scene was really difficult for him. And Nia Long said that after they were done, like she had to like walk out of the set and she had like a real breakdown herself because it was such an honest moment, you know, that that people go through. <laughs> and yeah, just a really moving scene. So many moving scenes in in this film and that's most certainly right up there yeah well let's uh let's stop there we'll go to another clip from boys in the hood but we'll come back we'll talk about john singleton and his other contributions to film and then we'll talk about one of our favorite things to discuss and that is the cast (laughs) yeah be right back yo cuz uh I know why you got the car last night. Shouldn't have been there in the first place. You don't want that shit to come back to haunt you. Ain't been up this early in a long time. Turned on the TV this morning. Had the shit on the bottom. About living in a violent, a violent world. Showed all these foreign places. Foreigners living on. I started thinking, man. Either they don't know, don't show, or don't care about what's going on in the hood. So I don't know that I could state enough how difficult it is just to make a movie, much less a really good one. And we've talked many, many times about, you know, covered many, many episodes of of directors' first movies. But uh, setting the scene here, uh, John Singleton, he's in film school. Um, I don't know what the percentage is of, of people who go to film school and then have, like, really hugely successful careers where, you know, people know the movies by a name of director um, extremely low extremely is, low yeah um yeah. so picture john singleton is 21 he's sold his script while in school to columbia pictures and within less than six months of graduating from college he's directing boys in the hood the movie is a just a huge success it goes to the can film festival uh, gets a 20-minute standing ovation. I, I think uh, they thought this was going to be a much smaller movie. It wasn't going to play to a broad audience, but it ended up really like making a lot of money playing to a broad audience. And after the huge box office success of Boys in the Hood, John Singleton not only becomes the first African-American director to be nominated for Best Director, he also becomes the youngest at the age of 23. Um, He was also nominated for Best Original Screenplay. 
Um, though he didn't win that year, just the nomination alone certainly got him a lot of press, a lot of buzz. And at the age of 24, you know, a second feature uh, working with Janet Jackson and, and a young Tupac Shakur, it's the kind of career that you just, it's almost unheard of, you know, to be that young, that successful, that confident, you know, even two years later, uh, directing Higher Learning. After that, successfully making another movie in 1997, uh, before the age of 30, having completed four features and finishing his 20s by directing Rosewood, which was another uh, critically acclaimed film, though not as widely seen as some of his other movies. After the 90s, John Singleton, uh, though he did um, like Baby Boy, which in 2001, which I think is another like pretty personal film of his, he did a you know a handful of action movies, like he redid Shaft. Um, he did Four Brothers with uh, Mark Wahlberg. Um, he did uh, the second Fast and the Furious movie. And then, uh, you know, started producing some stuff and then ended his directing career with feature films by doing um, the movie called Abduction, which was another sort of thriller action movie. So it's kind of interesting, you know, starting out, you know, in his 20s doing these like smaller personal films and then, you know, the latter part of his career um, kind of being more known as like an action director. And I think he, like a lot of directors, kind of went to where a lot of people are going now, which is TV or at least television shows, you know, and it's kind of the natural progression and certainly not what it was in the 80s when he started. But upon revisiting or just some watching some of these movies for the first time of his, I was really struck by Baby Boy, actually. I didn't particularly think I was going to be into the movie just based on the cover. It was like kind of just like super generic cover of Tyrese and Snoop Dogg. And was like, okay, let's see what this movie's about. What a friggin' deep movie that is such an untold story that I have never, I've never seen a movie like it that's talking about um, what it's like to be a mama's boy. And I've just, I've just never seen that story told in depth. And that is what it's about. I also really enjoyed Shaft, too. I didn't think, I mean, I have seen the original Shaft, of course, but a pretty uh, great revisit there of that movie. Yeah, and it was definitely, um, he got more successful in his career and were working with bigger budgets within the Hollywood system. He still, throughout his career, maintained, uh, you know, a dedication to putting black people in front of the camera and behind the camera, like trying to have predominantly black crews. And when he passed away, uh, I think Ice Cube, you know, said as a tribute to him that uh, that John Singleton um, loved bringing the black experience to the world. That was like something they truly loved, and it was it was out of sheer, sheer passion. And I think it's something that's like very evident with uh, with the movies that he left behind. Like I said before, all of his films really have this honesty and heart to to all of them. Everything that he that he'd done, and it, I think Cube's right on the money in saying that and bringing the story to the masses that maybe you haven't heard before, which is one of the things that sets him apart. And I, I think uh, probably what I knew John Singleton most for outside of a director is uh, producing and, and kind of using his own money to uh, make the movie Hustle and Flow, which is a movie that, that I really love. 
and that was a movie that couldn't get made, and so he financed it himself and then took it to uh, Sundance, and I think at the time it was like the highest sold film you know, in the festival's history at that time. I think other movies have, have sold for more than that. But, you know, using his success to help younger directors do their movies the way that they want, you know, and I think that's that's always a great thing to see, you know, directors who've, who've been successful to kind of give back to the uh, younger directors who are up and coming and, and help them uh, make the movies that they want to make without having to be hindered by studio system. And he, he was able to navigate that very well. I mean, I haven't really read too many uh, interviews where he, you know, said he had problems, you know, and having to conform to uh, get particular movies made. But it certainly seems like toward the latter part of his career, he was he was working on, you know, kind of like big pictures like Fast and Furious, though it's kind of like a tentpole thing now. I mean, he but he was still working on like the sequel, which was a big franchise movie. So it's 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 interesting to me, like uh, someone who was such a personal director going to that. But, you know, he wanted to make big movies, or even when he was young in interviews. And he said, I want to make movies that all everybody's going to see, like big movies like Steven Spielberg. Well, one of the things he talked about, I saw in one interview was saying that uh, Boys in the Hood, like a movie like that, what he did, his whole experience with that, it just wouldn't happen nowadays. And that's because studios want more control over a movie that's coming out, and it's about the budget being bigger and badder, and it's not necessarily about the filmmaker. And, And it's not to say, you know, his later films, he didn't have as much heart in them, but, you know, he wasn't writing and directing these movies that he was that he was directing. And I think it was he was, you know, kind of playing the game, because that's kind of where things were moving towards. And it's also, I think, I theorize anyway, why he was kind of drifting into television too, because it was just kind of where you have a little bit more creative control over things. And one thing too, if you go through his body of work, not only, like you said, Justin, you know, giving filmmakers help along the way and making sure that that they can get projects off the ground. But also, if you notice threads through his movies of using the same actors, you know, you find somebody good, you want to stick with them. And he certainly uh, was a reason for some careers blowing up. Like Boys in the Hood was the reason a lot of careers completely took off the ground. And putting his friends in movies, that's what he's kind of always done. Yeah, and the cast to Boys in the Hood, what an incredible cast. Certainly, like, Cuba Gooding Jr. is the is the lead star in this movie, but this is really, like, kind of like it's a, it's a character study and an, an ensemble piece that, that uh, you know, you really feel like you get a part of, like, who his friends are and the characters that live in this neighborhood. Yeah, the casting to this movie is, like, just kind of mind-blowing. Like, so many people who uh, started out in this are, like like, Angela Bassett, who, you know, has gone on to do so many movies and kind of seen like Lawrence Fishburne, who had really done like, like we said, like 10 years of movies, but this was giving him like a meaty role where he, he was kind of playing a character too that he hadn't really played in movies before. And I think he was around 30 and wasn't, uh, I don't think he'd really like settled into the idea of being the father figure, you know, that, that, that sort of role, but he really ended up being the mentor. I mean, not only because he was the most experienced, but I think the character that he was playing that 
John Singleton saw him as the whole time as this father figure, as his father figure, really. He he became that for everybody on set. Any actor that was, this was their first movie or they were just nervous about things, Lawrence Fishburne was right there to help him through it. And probably the most criminally underused actor who is one of my favorite performances in Boys in the Hood is Tyra Farrell, who really, I mean, she's been in a ton of stuff and you'd see her, but she always gets these like really small roles, but someone who can take a very tiny role and and have like a lasting impression, which I think is Uh, you know, that's a true talent of an actress to kind of, you know, even though you're playing the side role or the small character, leaving a lasting impression. Just watching her from the character that she plays in Boys in the Hood to his next movie, Poetic Justice, watching her acting skills from going from two completely different characters is so cool. Like when I I was watching all of these in in succession and seeing that I just kept laughing because it's such a drastic change and she does it so well. Yeah, Tyra Farrell, she was uh, right on. Yeah, I loved watching her. Her scene in Boys in the Hood where they bring... Ricky in who's completely covered in blood everybody's emotional um, you know he's already dead and the you, the sequence of her going from what are when you guys she enters doing? the room yeah, she enters Oof. the room she doesn't know what's going on she's kind of like are you messing around what are you guys why are you being so loud in here to complete panic and grief stricken to hysteria to um, anger I mean she it's just like you could how how she wasn't nominated for supporting yeah. actor and like I mean she she really is the one in that scene that that uh, is like the gut punch when she starts to blame Doughboy as the reason that that Ricky's dead because she can't deal with with what's happening you know it's just a moment of panic and grief and anger and she, you know her her son that she I mean you could say he, she loves him more than she loves Doughboy or at least treats him better than she treats Doughboy. That scene is so hurtful and just uh, Doughboy, you know, putting his arms around her because he doesn't know how to deal with it. It's not like he storms off and is mad and it becomes about just straight up anger. It's not that. Like that yeah. scene is so, oh God, it hurts. And she can, she has moments where like when the football scout comes over to their house to uh, interview <laughs> yeah. Ricky you know, she puts on such this like sweet uh, vibe for him. You know, she's kind of like trying to, to, to really, you know, make it as, as homey as possible. And then gives like a, a mean side eye to, to <laughs> Doughboy and like, you know, what are you doing? Like, get out of here. I, she, she's really able to like show, you know, a multifaceted character and uh, she's so great in this. And it's, it's a, uh, she's had a, she's had a really good career, but I, but I've, I, I feel like, again, like just criminally underused in movies like she should have after Boys in the Hood should have been in so many big movies. And I think that she originally auditioned for Angela Bassett's character. If I'm not mistaken, I'm I'm pretty sure that she auditioned for Mrs. Stiles, Trey's mom, and was fairly disappointed that sh- that Singleton wanted her to to play uh, Ricky and Doughboy's mom. But I don't know. I mean, Angela Bassett, I can never get enough of that woman. I love her. And in this role, I think she actually has a little bit smaller of a role than I'd say than Tyra Farrell does. But um, both both women are incredible, just truly incredible in this film. But Tyra Farrell certainly busts out every emotion that uh, one could 
see on screen. When John Singleton does a good job with giving everybody a really great scene to work with, like with Angela Bassett, the scene where she uh, wants to have Trey come live with her after Lawrence Fisherman's character is taking care of him for seven years and now, you know, she's ready for him to come live with her and they have the confrontation when they go, she has him meet her for lunch and she kind of puts a smack down on him and says, you know, now let me talk, you know, this isn't about him, just you have raised him like I'm still his mother. That scene is so great and it says so much about her character and and you see once she gets serious, like, Lawrence Fishburne kind of like shuts up and like listens to her, you know, yeah, she, it's a, it's a much smaller role, but when she comes back into the story, she comes back really strong. I think we, we haven't really stated this in the story, but the reason that Trey goes to live with his dad is because, uh, Angela Bassett's character is, is wanting to make a better life for them. And so she's, she's going to school and she ideally Whenever Trey comes back to live with her, this is her idea that, you know, she's going to have a house and be set up and and give him the best life possible. But at the time she is able to do that or have all of that ready for him, he's a man, you know, he's been living with his dad the whole time. So it's not like it was a bad reason or anything like that why, why she sent him to live with his dad. I feel like that needed to be said. I don't think we said that before. And but yeah, they kind of talk about the main cast here, uh, the three friends, um, Ricky, Trey and Doughboy portrayed by Cuba Gooding Jr., Ice Cube and Morris Chestnut. Doughboy portrayed by Ice Cube. It's it's kind of nuts to me to think that uh, Ice Cube had to be kind of coerced into doing this movie. Um, He didn't really know about doing the acting thing. And, you know, he's gone on to do so many movies. And I think like, you know, he doesn't have like a wide range of acting but I think in this movie, he gives probably one of the most honest and raw performances of, of anybody in the film. And uh, it's like he is that character. And it's it's again, it's it's crazy to me to think that, you know, he had not acted at all or like even like kind of dabbled with it up until his performance in Boys in the Hood. And I love the story about how he got involved with John Singleton, that Singleton had always wanted to have him in a movie and like kind of tried to uh convince him of that and they ran into each other periodically like throughout the years but he got him backstage at uh on the arsenio hall show because singleton was a pa there and he's like one day i'm gonna write it write a movie for you and he did the same thing actually to lawrence fishburne but um finally came off with that and pulled it off and ice cube's manager said you know, there's a guy here that really wants you to audition for this part. And he shows up and he's like, hey, it's you. You're the guy that was harassing me like three years ago about this. But turns out the audition, Cube's audition was awful. And it was awful because he hadn't taken the time to actually read the script, which sounds like something Ice Cube would do. That He could just walk in and like immediately own it because he can walk in and immediately own anything really. But he didn't own that audition, and he read the script, and as soon as he came back and did it again for John Singleton, he nailed it. And he really does. Man, I I just want to give him the biggest hug, even though he'd push me away in this movie. I, I love Doughboy. I think he's my favorite in this movie. Yeah, same for me. Um, well, moving on to Trey, portrayed by Cuba Gooding Jr., who is the star of the movie. You know, he's like the the central character, you know, the character that we're following 
throughout the film. He'd only really uh, done like a few kind of like little bit roles and I think really is the middle ground of characters for this movie. You know, I believe that all these things that Lawrence Fishburne's Furious's character has taught him have been ingrained and I think that they like show in his eyes and his movements and the way he interacts with his friends. He's the character I think that probably most people can relate to you know you're a little reserved but you're also you know and a little cautious but you also are honest and will back your friends if you need to all of that yeah and also he's not reactionary he's one of the and i guess like um ricky isn't really too reactionary either but he's taking the time to meditate on something before he does something which is i think what we don't see a lot of in in his friends and what what sets him apart and Cuba's performance he's got numerous times where he really shows off how he was just born to play this role and how his career blew up afterwards yeah and Cuba Goody Jr. had like a real kind of a really big you know career post this movie I mean he really didn't get typecast he he's done like a variety of roles and then um really only like was like four years later won uh the Oscar uh best supporting Oscar for uh his role in Jerry Maguire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's been in a lot of movies that I like a lot. Yeah. I'm, I'm never mad about seeing him in a movie. If anything, I'd be like, Oh, I bet this is going to be a good movie. Cause keep cutting juniors. In yeah. It. When, and if you've watched the uh, series, uh, the people versus OJ Simpson, when I first saw the uh, advertisement for that, the trailer, you know, and they said Cuba Gooding Jr. plays OJ, I just couldn't picture it, you know. I mean, Cuba Gooding Jr. is like just seems like smaller in stature, kind of a weird casting decision. But then I've, I've watched that whole series twice now, and it's like, man, you just you forget that it's Cuba Gooding Jr. like almost immediately. It's weird because it really looks like he embodies everything, like just OJ's dejected face the whole time that all of that was going on. Like he really just embodied it i don't know how he did it but yeah i i've also watched that series and i was really captivated by the entire thing and uh morris chestnut who has also had like a pretty big career you know has been in so many movies you know i think like for this you know he does play kind of the jock but also is a really like endearing character and and ricky has to be a character you care about because when when he dies if you don't care about his character that's that scene is not going to be as powerful and i think like he does Mm -hmm. uh, you know and he's not in the movie as much as i think doughboy or or cuba but in what John Singleton said, he wrote him as a knucklehead, like this sort of goofball. And I feel <laughs> like he's that character that we all can identify as is like, you know, the easygoing guy who's got like one particular sheer talent, but is like easygoing and kind of gets along with everybody and is kind of a dreamer, you know, is, is yeah. like looks at yeah. the positive side of things like, oh, wouldn't it be great if this could happen or wouldn't it be great? You know, doesn't, you know, and, and is surrounded by so much uh, depression and adversity but finds like, you know, uh, a little bit of, of, of happiness and positivity amongst everything. Um, and also is, you know, kind of a mama's boy, you know, the opposite of his brother. And the scene, yeah, the scene where he goes down, where he gets shot, that one, it's Singleton does a real good. And I mean, you could probably guess that it would be done kind of slowed down in slow motion, but man, is that not, you see the carefree 
feeling that Ricky has just kind of like disappear from him. Like once, once they realize that they're being chased by these guys and that there's maybe a risk that something's going to happen, you really see the immediate change in him. And Ricky might be a carefree guy, but he still knows the environment that he's living around and he knows that he needs to, the, the, the only option he has is to just run and unfortunately did not work out for him. And uh, worked with Singleton again. I didn't. I was when I was watching Higher Learning. A blink and you miss him uh, moment in Higher Learning. That's true. Uh, yeah. As uh, one of the members of the track team. Yeah. Um, but had, yeah, has gone on to have a big career, and recently was in the the girls' trip, which was like a huge hit. Oh yeah, that's right. He was, wasn't he? Um, let's see. Just kind of to rounded out the um, two other female roles are really important to this movie. Um, one is uh, Nia Long, who plays Brandy, Trey's girlfriend. Such a, I mean, she she does a great job in anything that she's in, generally like playing the sweet, smart, just all-round girl that like you want to be your friend because she is she's a good person, you know? And that that's who she plays in this movie, and she's really great at it. And she's kind of... Trey's rock in a lot of ways in the ways that his father is for him um she fills in the gap and also like keeps him in line and isn't afraid of you know standing up for herself and saying like what she needs and she is very commanding and does such a good job and uh I think at her audition she was John Singleton kind of singled her out in like the long line of folks that were outside waiting to go into the audition and no one knew what John Singleton looked like, you know? And so he comes up to her and he's like, Hey, tell me, tell me a little bit about you. And she was like, excuse me, who are you? And gave him some attitude back. And he was really trying to get some, you know, get a little bit out of her, like just naturally who she was. And so she goes into the audition and he's there and she's like, oh, my God, I just blew that because I was kind of I totally blew him off outside. And but that's actually one of the reasons she got the part. Man, she's been in so much stuff like um, I love that her both her like so many people from this were in Friday together. Um, but <laughs> yeah. uh, she's also um, in kind of one of my favorite like romantic type movies. And that's uh, Love Jones. Oh yeah, that, that's one I can I can never get enough of. Oh yeah, I mean she's she's extremely talented. You can just looking at her, you feel this integrity about her too. Uh, yeah, she's definitely strong, strong lead. And not to be outdone, I gotta say I love when Regina King is in anything, and I watched her in Two Two Seven growing up. I mean I. I remember very little because I watched that like when I was growing up, but I remember her character and uh, yeah, this was like the next thing that she got after two, two, seven. She said that she wasn't able after that show ended, she really wasn't even able to get an audition, which is crazy to me after being on a show for like five years that that would happen. But it was also the state of Hollywood for black actors, but she got boys in the hood and I don't know. I don't know. How do you feel about Regina King, Justin? I uh, love her. I love Regina King. I mean, she's and she's been in so many movies that were like hits or like cult hits. Um, I love that she's with you know that she plays Cuba Gooding Jr.'s wife and and Jerry Maguire. Um, mm-hmm. Even though I don't really like that movie that very much, but 
Sure. Yeah, she. I think she always brings like a little uh, comedic edge to like a lot of her performances. She, uh, there's a little revisit in Higher Learning. I noticed between she and Ice Cube that because uh, they are in Boys in the Hood, they've got like a little bit of I don't want to say animosity, but a little bit of like poking each other a little bit. And there's a scene like that in Higher Learning too, and you know that they're. John Singleton's cracking up over the fact that he did that. It's totally revisiting Boys in the Hood. Yeah, and I think there's a reason why John Singleton used Regina King for, you know, his first three movies. She had, like, pretty substantial roles, or mm-hmm. each role got a little bit bigger as his uh, movies progressed. And, you know, and she's, uh, like, I think had, like, a real huge, like, steady career where she was getting bigger roles and then um, most recently won uh, – best actress for uh if beale street could talk so i'm curious to see like you know what she uh will be in next if uh they're ever ever able to start making movies again after the uh pandemic is is kind of like calmed down oh this pandemic i tell you Let's see. I mean, there's so many people to talk about in this. And like we said before, John Singleton always brings back um, actors like um, V-Dub, who you might remember from Boys in the Hood as the guy with the pacifier, who I learned the reason he had the pacifier was because he was trying to stop smoking. So John Singleton just liked that look. And so he had to keep had him keep that for the character. I know that actor did pass away, but John Singleton forever immortalized him on screen. Again, such a great cast for this movie, but let's uh, let's stop there. Uh, we'll come back for some final thoughts on Boys in the Hood, but let's get into our picks of the week. Um, again, Lindsay, you went for Higher Learning, John Singleton's third movie. What can you tell me about Higher Learning? Well, Higher Learning was my introduction, really, to John Singleton when I first realized who whose movies I had been watching and, and really took note of it. Fairly certain he was writing this movie while he was still an undergrad, and it feels like a two-hour multicultural class. He successfully weaves together almost every type of oppression into a fictional college campus, a university named after a celebrated oppressor, which is no coincidence. Singleton broadens his scope of subject matter, this time hitting on a checklist of rough topics like racism, classism, rape, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, and even school shootings. This is all a heightened sense of reality and is very in your face. The film focuses on three main characters, though the entire cast is important too. Malik, played by Omar Epps, is an incoming freshman with a little chip on his shoulder. He's been getting by but not putting the work in. Lawrence Fishburne plays Phipps, the political science professor with whom Malik expects special treatment because they're both black. Phipps seeks to challenge Malik's apathy and feed his brain instead of letting him skate by. Pushed into doing better for himself, he's got to stop relying on thinking that the world owes him because it just ain't going to happen. Epps' character growth is certainly prominent and is also partnered up with a girl Malik briefly encounters in an elevator. No words are exchanged, but the girl clutches her purse tighter when Malik is standing next to her, a moment that's soon forgotten as soon as it happened by her, but Malik recognizes this as a subtle racist move. Meet Kristen, played by Christy Swanson. She's a basic Orange County white girl, naive, ready to be imprinted on, or just blissfully unaware. Luckily for her, she meets up with a seemingly lesbian person from the students from a non-sexist society hoping to enlighten her in the most respectful of ways, but unfortunately not before a traumatic experience forever alters Kristen's worldview. 
Lastly, we've got Remy, played by Michael Rapaport. He really brings together all these tensions in the movie and is the catalyst for the climax. He's a lost white guy, doesn't have direction, socially awkward, and just waiting for any crowd to accept him. Like true predators, a group of white supremacist students give him a purpose. He doesn't have any self-esteem, which Singleton shows can create a very dangerous person. They're all malleable personalities seeking knowledge. These three people set in motion events which revolve around the all-too-common social issues, but set in this microcosm of a world, a college campus. My favorite characters might be some of the supporting roles. Tyra Banks is so awesome playing Malik's girlfriend. Um, She brings the most amount of brain to the film next to Fishburne. Ice Cube... Um, comes back for this movie too. Um, His wisdom as the six-year college student is perfect for him. Um, He and Tyra are kind of the enlightened ones, but the way in which they look at life is totally contrasting. Regina King, of course, already said I love her, uh, rounds out my faves. She plays Monet, Kristen's roommate, and recognizes that Kristen is extremely naive, but doesn't put her white roommate in a box just based on race. She does have this great line uh, that she says to Kristen that's always stuck with me. Just because you and I get along doesn't mean everybody has to. You need to get this we are the world stuff out of your head because it's just not going to happen. Right there, that tells you everything about higher learning. Buster Rhymes also makes a, a appearance in this movie as Ice Cube's right-hand man. And Cole Hauser, uh, man, this guy just made a career out of being a bigot in movies like all over me but he really turns in a chilling performance as like the main nazi boy on campus like i said before this movie really does hit on every type of topic hot button issue topic and one um, is the idea of bisexuality which was hardly ever brought up in movies at the time and kind of today still remains a muted subject Now, Singleton's hetero maleness does come through uh, with this subject, but it's visibility that matters. And like everything in higher learning, this movie is about creating a dialogue. A lot of time is spent showing different groups of people being brought together by circumstances, even amongst the self-segregation that a, a lot of groups do just based on their race. Like a true visual storyteller, he shows us that we're all the same. Same emotions, same feelings of victimization, but how we choose to move forward, there's the difference. And he guides us through this movie with various kind of filming techniques, and you really start to notice how he's evolved since Boys in the Hood. Um, Like creative transitions and blocking, he did a lot of that in Boys in the Hood, and we kind of see how he's gotten even more creative with that there's a couple scenes in higher learning which i really admire his uh even attempting the scene that he even attempted transitions that he did they're pretty cool and i'd be remiss to not mention the very soulful funk heavy atmospheric soundtrack music is super important to john singleton and every song um in this movie has an intentional purpose like malik Kristen, and remy they're introduced by uh, when we see them setting up their dorms, but it's over the music that they're listening to, you know, in their dorm room. So we immediately get the idea of, of who they are based on their music and make a judgment based on that. There's also a really gut-wrenching scene where Singleton chose a Tori Amos song that's over a rape scene. And if you know Tori Amos's history with that, it was just a very thoughtful 
choice. Um, it really amps up the impact of that scene. So higher learning does cram in a lot as much as possible. Um, we look at this movie, you know, 25 years later and realize that nothing has changed, which is pretty sad, but, um, in some ways it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, to like look back and see where we were 25 years ago and look back and see, has it gotten better? Has it actually gotten worse? I can't even tell nowadays, you know, as we've mentioned about John Singleton's films, this movie is full of heart and meant to make you think and reevaluate just as it opened higher learning closes on an American flag. But this time Singleton leaves us with one word typed out on screen unlearn. He also chose to have uh, Swanson positioned right in front of the flag as she's speaking at a rally, publicly admitting that she'd been raped. This is America. This happens. This is us. Victimization is everywhere. Reminding us that we are the product of what's around us and what we come from, whatever happens to us. We're all processing this together. And the only way to make peace, to create change, is to bridge the gap, reconnect, and unlearn. I'm kind of happy in some ways that this was my first John Singleton movie or first movie that I watched and realized, you know, who the director was and made note of it and then was like, oh, I've seen his movies before. Yeah, if you get a chance, watch Higher Learning. I, like I said, it is a heightened version of reality and there's a lot crammed into it, but it's a good revisit. Yeah, I really enjoyed the revisit of this movie. Um, it, there is a lot going on, there's a lot crammed is a very good word. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it, there's so much happening, but, uh, the movie's like riveting and entertaining, but yeah, it's like has a powerful message that I think really you could watch that movie today. And I, I find like a lot of these John Singleton movies I'm watching now and thinking like, you know, they're as relevant today as they were when they came out. Yeah. And you know, boys in the hood, the characters are much more developed and rich and there's just not enough time in higher learning. There's a lot more characters involved and a lot more plots happening, but it doesn't mean that it's any less effective. You know, like I said before, I feel like a lot of his movies just need to be taught in high school. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I cannot wait to hear about this Lawrence Fishburne movie. Tell us about it. So, like I said, uh, Deep Cover was Lawrence Fishburne's first uh I guess one of his first movies where he's like the lead marquee actor. This movie was directed by uh, actor turned director Bill Duke, who you know I love so much in Commando and, and Predator. This is a it's kind of like a genre blending movie. It's kind of film noir, crime, character driven drama. So Fishburne plays an a uh, police officer who decides to get into undercover work. When he was younger, we see in the beginning of the movie, he sees his father start a life of crime and is gunned down in front of him as an eight-year-old kid. And then we cut 20 years later to him working in the police force and gets hired onto a special assignment as an under undercover cop trying to bring down a huge drug lord. This seems like a, a plot that we've seen many times before, and certainly is, but this movie, uh, I think, makes up for a plot that we've seen many, many times before with script and style, and, and certainly with Lawrence Fishburne's performance. As he goes deeper undercover, he needs to start selling drugs, and he realizes that he's better at being a drug dealer and, and, and manipulating people than he was as a police officer. There's some great characters in this movie. This movie's rich with characters. It's kind of like why I wanted to pick it 
along with Boys in the Hood because it's another movie where even though people have a very small screen time, uh, they make the most with it. You know, everybody is memorable. Namely, Jeff Jeff Goldblum uh, plays a character in this that it's a little bit different side than you've seen Jeff Goldblum doing movies before. And uh, one of his performances I don't really think is too talked about. So it's worth it just for that if you if you're a fan of Jeff Goldblum and you haven't seen this movie. I don't really want to give away too much of the plot because if this is one that you haven't seen, I highly recommend it because it does have a lot of twists and turns. Great music. You know, I love a movie where the theme song is the same name of the movie and thematically has ties to the plot of the movie. And the theme song, Deep Cover, was done by Dr. Dre with an early performance uh, collaboration with um, Snoop Dogg before he put out his first big uh, solo album. Uh, this is a movie that's like really gritty, uh, some really great stylistic choices by director Bill Duke, who I think was trying to make a, a gritty movie that was like along the lines of New Jack City. But this one, I think, is almost trying to make the characters like cooler. And I think it kind of shows a little bit about the dealer life and Lawrence Fishburne's character like kind of gets sucked into the world of like uh, making a lot of money and, and having power and having connections and in uh the movie deals a lot with the moral compass of his character yeah it's it's highly entertaining um it's a really tight script the movie's um i think maybe like clocks in like an hour and 45 minutes um if you like crime dramas and you're a fan of uh, jeff goldblum and lawrence fishburne um this movie's kind of like a slam dunk for a watch or a rewatch is this streaming somewhere or do you have it? I couldn't find it streaming anywhere. I actually okay. had the DVD, but um, I think you okay. can get it on Prime for, I mean, most like YouTube and places, you can still find it for rent uh, streaming yeah. for like $3. Yeah. Which is, I mean, $3, come on. Um, yeah, I feel, this seems right up my alley. I'm glad you uh, told us about this one. Yeah, yeah. Well, those are our picks of the week. Uh, Higher Learning and Deep Cover, two movies definitely worth checking out or revisiting if uh, you haven't seen them in a while or haven't seen them at all. Um, But let's keep going. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow. Come and shake my monkey tree again! Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes embrace all. Striking. That was fun. One thing that's persisted in Billy Murray's life is his unpredictability. From when he was a kid battling for attention with his eight siblings at the dinner table to legendary tales and this Murray moment. In no way am I promoting violence or confrontations or ever a way to solve a problem in life. I was crossing the street with my dogs the other day and this car blows through the stoplight and almost hit us. After being absorbed by, you know, watching Boys in the Hood a lot, Recently, I couldn't help but mutter some choice words um, under my breath towards the car that almost hit me. But what I wanted to do was bash in the headlights. And this kind of like violent reaction within me um, at this moment, I remembered a very fitting Murray moment for this episode. And that being the time that Billy had enough of someone giving him grief. So he decided to put an immediate stop to it. Picture this. 
Toronto, Canada, 1974. Second City Chicago and Toronto troops decided to switch casts, and Bill finds himself on a new stage with a Canadian audience. I wasn't there that night, said Second City player Joe Flaherty. There was someone drunk in the audience that just kept heckling him. He told him to shut up, and he just wouldn't shut up. Though she was also not there, another Second City player, Robin McCullough, uh, said that the guy had just been tormenting Billy all night. Finally, during the suggestion taking for the improv set, Bill lost it, she said. He screams, fuck you and your date too. He's not shy about throwing his fists around, Second City player Dave Thomas once said about those early days of Billy. Everyone's account of the story varies. You know, it was a long time ago. Um, Another Second City cast member, Sheldon Patankin, said he heard about the story as soon as he arrived in Toronto. Bill's the only one I know who actually jumped out into the audience, grabbed a guy, pulled him out into the alley, and beat the living shit out of him, he said. Now, for Mert Rich, who'd been sharing the stage with Billy at the time, there's no confusing what happened here. We had a heckler in the audience all night, Rich said. All of a sudden, Murray says, ladies and gentlemen, there's someone who's been interrupting the show all night and they won't do it any longer. As Billy abandons the stage, he jumps into the audience and drags this drunk heckler out into the alley and lets him have it. Multiple sources claim that Billy reinvented the way the guy's arm bent, but Rich doesn't recall any actual breaking of bones. The guy didn't sue, or maybe even even remember that it had even happened, um, because <laughs> Rich said that the guy comes back. He came back in and he wanders backstage. He's so out of it and now claiming that he lost his wallet, not even registering that he's staring straight at Billy, who just whooped his butt straight against a fire exit door in an alley. Bill taught me a valuable lesson in audience management that night, Rich said. I think we all, deep in our hearts, had a time when we had the same thought cross our minds, McCullough said. Bill just stood in for all of us. Now, this is just one of many stories which contribute to why old friends um, of Billy's have referred to him as the Murricane, an unpredictable force of nature. You don't mess with a person's crew, mama, or show disrespect, and you won't get the wrath, whether you're, you know, Doughboy in Boys in the Hood or you're the Murricane. Being a self-admitted, you know, quote, loner, brawler, and joint smoker, Billy's always worked within his parameters. His predictable unpredictability is something one can always bank on. And there's a few other stories out there, you know, like this, but hey, that's another Murray moment. The uh, darker side of Murray. (laughs) I love how there's only one person that says that he didn't break the guy's arm, but everyone else is like he totally broke that guy's arm. That's messed up. It's pretty funny. I don't think he did. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, yeah. It was 1974. The violent, the violent years. <laughs> yeah, the violent years. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for that Murray moment. Uh, I was, I was expecting that one. These things just happen. They just uh, find themselves, you know. <laughs> I was like thinking in my head, like, was Bill Murray and Ice Cube in a movie together? I couldn't like. I well, couldn't, I couldn't picture it. No, they haven't. There's a there's a Lawrence Fishburne, Bill Murray thing, but I decided not to go for that one. There's, yeah, maybe another time. We'll see. Yeah. Well, thank you for that Murray moment. Of course. And do you have any uh, final thoughts on Boys in the Hood before we wrap things up for the uh, episode? Um, let's see. 
little fun fact is the the scene in Boys in the Hood where Trey and Ricky are meeting up with uh, Regina King and Ice Cube, and it's like kind of like where there's a big, uh, a lot of people in cars. There's like a hundred extras, you know, something like that, and then they meet up with um, uh, somebody mouths off and. Cube steps up to him and shows him that he's got a piece on him. And then the other guy shoots off a gun. Everybody runs and scatters. Well, that whole scene, when you watch that, nobody knew that that guy was going to fire a gun. And so the reaction of everyone in that scene is legit. Everyone was, because I think everyone was already kind of a little on edge. There had been a, a threat from a gang because of just where they were and, you know, you're in their territory. Um, so there was people were a little on edge that maybe a drive by or something could happen while they're filming. So this, you know, gun goes off and that reaction that you see in the movie, I'm fairly certain was the first take that they did of that. So super extreme reaction from everybody. And it's a really good scene. Almost kind of like the um, borrowing from uh, what Rob Reiner did in and uh, stand by me to scare the mm-hmm. scare the kids into a, a, a terrified performance. Yeah, totally, totally. When in doubt, just don't tell them what's going to yeah, happen and yeah. get that legit reaction. Make it real. I guess my only final thought on the movie is I always love it when movies do this where they have, uh, you know, an original score mixed in with uh, contemporary uh, music, especially for a movie like this that that was so hip to the times and this uh, had a really big soundtrack uh, that spawned two singles the soundtrack was uh, I think like almost as successful as the movie but then it also had uh, Stanley Clark do like a jazz inspired score he's gone on he, he's composed so many movies but he worked with uh, John Singleton uh, doing the uh, score for Poetic Justice and Higher Learning as well but I think it really is a nice transition this movie to go from score into the, you know the hip hop R and B soundtrack um, that flows throughout the movie. It really, to me, um, it's like a nice dichotomy. Oh yeah, for sure. The music in this movie is um, like, and John Singleton really is able to find the most real way to uh, get across the realness in a scene, and then also something music that's going to pull some serious emotion out of you yeah i really did uh, notice that how it was very different in some scenes you know obviously like some real jams that were being laid down that's probably sounds really dumb but some like good music that's being laid down yeah and i I feel like dramatic scenes you got the score always helps a dramatic a dramatic scene i mean it can hurt it too by making it you know kind of like over you know trying to like manipulate your feelings but i think in this movie, like this, you know, the dramatic scenes like really called for a for a score. Yeah, there's no manipulation here because you're already feeling it. This is just like just just making you feel it even deeper on a on a level. It, it's a you can't even control type of thing. Well, we'll stop there. Um, hope you've enjoyed our talk on Boys in the Hood. And once again, R.I.P. to John Singleton. I, I feel bad that it's, it's taken us this long to do. Uh, somewhat of a tribute episode, but uh, better late than never. Yeah, very true. I'm I'm so proud of what this guy has brought to the movie world. And man, we we lost a an incredible voice for the world, and 
it is a gosh darn shame. And but I'm very thankful for the body of work that he's left behind. I agree. Well, what do we got coming up next? Oh, I know what we have coming up next. Our next episode, we're uh, going with another uh, old classic, the 30th anniversary of uh, Total Recall. Crazy. That's one we've talked about, too, and um, it's taken us a little while to get to it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. So that's coming up next. Um, If you haven't, please follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, we seem to be more, most active on Instagram, but you can always see you know, what we're watching, what movies are coming up, uh, what we're talking about. If you'd like to listen to any of our old episodes, they're on most platforms, but uh, our archive is on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. And there you also find, uh, we have a, a store there where we have Don't Push Pause podcast merch, as well as posters, these little VHS box things that we make, all kinds of goodies, uh, you know, some of them random, some of them not, but they're all for sale <laughs> and all that money goes to helping us produce a bigger and better podcast. If you want to reach us directly for any reason whatsoever, you can always contact us at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys.